So uh, I would invite you this morning, whether you're new or whether you've been here for some time, I would invite you to uh, take a look around at some of the decorations. The wall is now complete over in the back corner. Our kids have been spending many weeks prepping for, um, to decorate the, the uh, nativity scene for us. It's, it's really amazing. If you haven't gone and just taken a moment to look into that box, that nativity box over there, go and take a, a little peer. It's like, I think there's a Christmas chicken in there. It's awesome. So our kids are leading us towards the day, towards Christ. And um, all of this around us is a great festival as we remember that Christmas is coming once again. And at Grassroots here, we've been prepping. And uh, all we've been doing for the last many weeks, if this is, if this is your first time here, well, a warm welcome to you. You're jumping in and uh, you'll, catch, you'll catch on and catch up right away. What we've been doing for the last two or three weeks is prepping for Christmas, prepping our hearts and our schedules and our lives for the day. Because the day can come so quickly and leave so quickly that uh, we've actually missed its holiness or we've missed its mystery or we've missed its power in our life to remind us that God is a God who does not leave evil unfinished. He's a God who redeems and restores and makes all things new. And um, those might seem like big ideas and big concepts, but if we take the time to prepare and if we take the time to open our hearts, we recognize that it speaks right to the center of our deepest places where we need redemption and we need someone to come in and make things new. And so as a community, as a, as a people of God, we come together to remember once a year that Jesus is our renewer and our redeemer. And I don't, I don't know about you, but uh, I've got someone in my life or in my life story who was the person that loved Christmas the most. I don't know, can, can you guys think in your minds, is there one person or a couple people, maybe a grandparent or an aunt or uncle or a brother or sister or relative who just does Christmas amazingly. And they, for, for some reason, they just love the season. Uh, for me, it was my grandmother, Rosemary. Uh, she... Um, was the one who made all of the, the food, all of the recipes. Of course, people were helping her, but she was the driving force on the decorations, on the songs, on the smells. And I just remember every Christmas, she would be the one that would, um, above everyone else, kind of got the point. And, um, and uh, one year, I remember um, sitting at the Christmas table. We were, I think, I believe it was a Christmas time meal we were having. And I remember she was eating and she was eating and she dropped her fork on the table and she looked up and she kind of like embarrassingly laughed. Uh, and she went down and eating again and started eating again. Um, none of us knew at that time, but that was the first tremors of, um, of, of uh, cancer. She had uh, a brain tumor that was growing and she um, would for the next many months kind of deteriorate until they figured out what was, what was the problem. And I don't remember, I kind of feel embarrassed about this, but um, after we lost her, I don't remember the first Christmas without her. I've, I've kind of sat down and tried to think, like, what was that like? I remember there was a heaviness. I remember there was a great sense of loss. Um, but I don't, I don't remember many details of the first Christmas without her. And I kind, of, I kind of regret that. I wish I had more of those memories. And the family took some time to pick the pieces up. And I don't think Christmas really has ever been the same since. I don't, some of you may have similar stories of the holidays. And, you know, and of course, 
when these times come, and especially when we lose those people in our life, uh, we can feel their loss so immensely, so deeply. Um, and, and yet somehow, over the course of centuries and generations and generations, in the midst of profound loss, we learn how to find some of the deepest places of joy. Joy in itself, and this is the joy candle we lit this week, the kids, the, the pink one. And uh, I put that picture up of the thing which was broken, which was made new. And I, I think, you know, some people are just like, put on a happy face, pretend it didn't happen, move on. And, you know, to all those people, they don't sort of, it's like, it's like they're numbing the pain in their life. They're not addressing it. Uh, but joy is very different. I don't know if you've felt the difference in your life between joy and happiness. And joy sits right in the seat of pain, and, um, and because we have a hope that all things which were broken will be remade and put back together again, we can have this deep sense of joy, which is so much more than happiness. So as we, as we go into this Christmas story again, part of the invitation to you as a, as a reminder is uh, because the season can come and go by so quickly, we're trying to, in our, in our minds, prepare ourselves and um, some of you may need to prepare yourselves to uh, see if you can discover, explore joy this season, even if there's an immense amount of pain. And so that's some of the invitation that, that I'm giving to you, because um, the Christmas story, the, the, the original Christmas story, I mean, we have the nativities and we tell the stories of the angels and the wise men. But if we allow ourselves to get into the mindset and the world of the first Christmas, we understand that it was set within a deep amount of pain. It's not, a, it's not really a happy story, so to speak, but it is a story filled with joy. So um, let's get into this today. Last couple of weeks, we've been re reminding ourselves of some of the main characters of the Christmas story, Mary and Joseph, of course. Mary is Jesus' mom and Joseph, her husband, and um, Jesus, or not husband yet, but or did they get married? I lost that fact. I'll, I'll get back to you on that. Um, her, her either fiancé or new husband, uh, they, were, they were there in the, um, in the manger as, as Jesus was being born, traveling quite a distance. We have the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, of um, Mary's distant cousins. And we have a number of songs and psalms that these first followers of Jesus were singing at the arrival because there was a great promise that this wasn't just any child. This child would be the answer to hundreds and hundreds of years of question. This child would be the hope for generations upon generations of people who went through hoping but didn't have an answer to that, so the, that hope. And so the first Christmas and the songs and the psalms, which were written by the, the characters in the story, uh, tell us that their Christmas is a time for anyone who has waited decades or a whole lifetime, perhaps, for something to come true. So let's jump in today. Now oh, this one's a little clearer over here. Um, here we have the story progressing Next week on Christmas Eve service, if you missed that, the Christmas Eve service is next Monday night at 6 p.m. 
there's a church service. We'll do Sunday morning service on the 23rd, on the next Sunday. But Monday the 24th, 6 p.m., we'll come and we'll light the, the white candle here. And Jesus, and, and we'll tell the story of Jesus being born. This is just right after Jesus was being born. He was born, and then his mother and father, as custom had it, brought him into the temple to have him circumcised and dedicated to the Lord. And in this encounter in the temple, after he was born, they come across two wise old figures. One of them, a man named Simeon, and then a woman named Anna. And the story of Anna and Simeon are quite lovely. They, they are people who are in the temple, if you can imagine a great temple complex, um, they, they almost live in there. They may, have, they, they may have been sleeping in the temple or may have just been coming every day. They spend the whole day in prayer and singing psalms. The temple was a place where the psalms that we have them in the Old Testament were sung quite uh, often uh, and, and gone through regularly. They would have heard the music and the dancing and, and the singing and, the, and smelled the sacrifices and uh, heard all of, all of the, the pomp of, of the temple. And they would be there every day fasting and praying and waiting for the redemption of Israel, for Israel to be restored. And so these are a group of joyful people uh, who had gone through a lot of pain in their life. Uh, Anna, we know, was, was married at one point and she became a widow maybe a handful of years after she was married and never married again after that and spent her, her days uh, in, the, in the temple. If you do all the chronology, it counts up that she is 106 and she is going to um, hold Jesus and give him a blessing. Simeon's not quite as old, but uh, he was an, an old man at the time and um, it says that he was also fasting and praying and waiting. Um, so again, this, these stories are for anyone who's waited decades or a lifetime. Um, and so what happens is Simeon, he gets this sense that uh, when he sees Jesus, that this is going to be the king. This is going to be the king that's been born into Israel. And uh, he begins and, and prays this, writes this psalm. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. This is the song which bubbles up out of his heart when he first sees Jesus. And I, I love this. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised. I mean, this means that Simeon has developed a life of prayer in a way where he, uh, he's communing with God. That at some point, individually, God had promised to Simeon, you will see my son, the son that was promised over 400 years ago. You will see my son before you die. The king of Israel, the one who will redeem us all. And uh, so Simeon sees Jesus and recognizes, boom, this is it. This is the, the answer to that prayer. He had developed that prayer life so deeply that he could understand what God was saying to him. And... Uh, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. I, I love this. This is like one of those moments where like, I can die a happy man. I don't know, if, I don't know like, what it is in your life that would happen that would make you go, I could die right now and it would be all good. <laughs> what, what would that be for you, I wonder? Um, this is one of those moments. Now, um, in order to 
get the full extent of what Simeon's saying here. My eyes have seen your salvation. Okay, it's a big kind of fuzzy word, which you have prepared for in the sight of all nations. Okay, why is that important? A light for the revelation to Gentiles. So, okay, that doesn't really mean much. And the glory of your people, Israel. Okay, these are all kind of words that don't hit us until we get deep into the history. So, are you ready? I'm going to give us a bit of an ancient history lesson here to help us understand just what Simeon had lived through and why he was so desperately waiting and hoping. Okay, I can see everyone kind of shifting. Like The people who are going to decide to fall asleep are getting ready for that. And the people who are interested are kind of shuffling as well. Okay, this is good stuff. This is like soap opera kind of good. All right? Here we go. So, does anyone remember who the king was when Jesus was born? King Herod the Great. King Herod was not a good dude. And the Bible in, in, in Matthew tells us that because he uh, uh, was notorious for anyone who was going to threaten his king, kingdom. His kingship was, I mean, he's just going to kill him. <laughs> and so he, he goes and he has all the children under two slaughtered. Um, and Jesus escapes. That's, that's in the book of Matthew. Uh, but this was, if you read the historian Josephus, this was just normal for, for King Herod. Uh, Josephus tells us that King Herod lived until he was 70 or 80 years old. He held on to his kingship for, for decade after decade of ruthless rule. Um, and he was shrewd and he built all sorts of things. But at the end, his family was in such disarray that he was probably, says Josephus, the man most to be pitied in all of Israel. So let's go back and tell a story here of, of King Herod. King Herod was, you know, as a king of the Jews, the, the Jews were waiting for a uh, prince of peace, right? They're waiting, Isaiah promised, he will be a, a king that's full of righteousness. He will, he will fill the land with God's ways, and he's a king of peace. And Herod comes in the picture. He's, he's not really even from the line of David, which didn't really count to many people. And so... Um, Early on in his life, this is Mariamne. You can see she's in chains there. Mariamne was one of Herod's wives. He had, I think, uh, five wives, out of which many of his children came. She was the, the last princess of the previous Jewish line of kings. She was, she was actually she was born out of two lines that made her the last rightful heir of the Hasmonean dynasty. She was beautiful, gorgeous woman uh, who Herod just adored and loved her. Uh, he loved her so much that, um, that when, he, when he went off to battle once and he didn't think he was coming back, he told his, his servant, he said, if I die, you have to kill Mariamne because I cannot stand the idea of her being with another man. <laughs> okay, this is soap opera, I told you. Um, and so um, he, he went off and he lived and he came back and, and he, they just continued on in, in their marriage. Uh, also, what had happened is Mariamne had a brother. Uh, and her brother, Hyrcanus, was also the rightful heir to the Hasmonean dynasty. And he was, he was also a strapping young lad. And when he grew up and he was 12, 13 years old, Herod made him the high priest. But people started to adore him and to love him. And to look to him maybe as the king. And so what, what did Herod do? When no one was looking, uh, Mariamne's mother held a feast in the, in the city of Jericho. 
and they held, she held a feast, and when no one was looking, Herod had his servants go and take this young man while he was swimming and drown him, hold him down and drown him, and then blame someone else for it. It, like, it was, a, it was, a, it was a, a fake drowning. Killed him. Mariamne got wind of this, and she started realizing, my husband is a monster. <laughs> okay? And so what happened is, is King Herod went off to another war, and she started to catch wind of how much a monster he was, and she started to despise him. And so when, when he came back from war, it was the same thing. They were, he, she and her mom were locked up in a tower, and the, the order were if Herod gets killed, her and her mom gets killed, because he can't stand, he's, he'd be so jealous in the afterlife. So he comes back, he survives, and he comes to tell his wife, who he loves more than anything, said Josephus. He just had this twisted, psychotic love for her, um, that, that she was just cold. I wish you were dead. She was just brave enough to tell him that. And it enraged him, but he was so confused, he spent week after week hating her and loving her and hating her and loving her, until, um, till his sister, Herod's sister, who hated Mariamne, this gets really convoluted. I'll try to make this clear. Sister who hates Mariamne convinces Herod that um, Mariamne was going to poison and kill him. Herod, this is, this is a setup. This is not true. But Herod believes it. And he, he's so angry that he's going to kill her. He's going to cut her head off. But he loves her so much so it stops him. So instead of that, he sent her to court for, for uh, treason. And they find her guilty of treason and they cut off her head. And, they, and, and he's, he's like, he's so angry but also grieving that he goes off into the wilderness and like goes mad and then pulls it back together and comes back. Okay, this is Herod. Herod, when Herod killed Mariamne, I did the math, Simeon, no, Anna, would have been 80 years old. Simeon would have been like maybe 50 or 60. They would have lived through, this is the story they're living in. This is all their hopes for a, a God's king are placed in these people. So Simeon and Anna, they're not just sort of isolated figures. They're part of history. I'm just going to keep on going with this just a little bit to, to help us understand because my great aunt is now 90, 98. So I did the math. And when... Anna was my age, her great aunt would have lived through the previous Jewish civil war, okay? I'm just going to move back. This is interesting. Are you interested? This is interesting. Um, this is a picture of Judas Maccabeus and his people restoring the temple in 167 BC. Um, Anna's great aunt may have lived through this if Anna's great aunt was alive for that long. If, if, if old age was in their lineage. This is, this, is not, this is like my aunt telling the stories of World War II. Okay? This is not ancient history to them. This is like, this is in the fresh past. So here's what happens. Antiochus Epiphanes IV, a king from the north, comes down and decides to rule Israel. He takes over. He's the, he's, Israel's under oppression. He goes into the temple and sets up an image of a god in the temple. Okay, Someone was helping me think through this. Like, What would that be similar to here in Thunder Bay? It would be like Donald Trump coming up to Thunder Bay and putting a statue of himself on the Terry Fox monument. <laughs> Those are fighting words, eh? 
okay? That's the level, maybe even more, to which the Jews felt when the, temp- the, the um, idol gets put in the temple. And they had, they had no control over it. Profanes, the temple is profaned, and idols in the temple. And so there's a war, a, a war, an uprising of thunder bears, up, an uprising. We're going to redeem the, the Terry Fox monument. We're going to restore it to its rightful place and tear down the false god. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, um, so there's an uprising. Judas Maccabeus' brothers come, and they, they, it takes them many, many months to, to fight down the, uh, the Syrian army and fight their way back into Jerusalem, tear down the, the idol, throw it away, uh, and restore the temple and they had to rededicate the temple. And in order to rededicate the temple, they decided to take eight days to rededicate the temple. And each day they would light one of the, one of the candles of the menorah here. And in memory of this, Jews established the, the festival of Hanukkah. That's what Hanukkah is about, remembering this event. As, as they brought the, 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 the um, menorah back into the temple and relit it and rededicated the temple. Now, uh, so Simeon and Anna would have this in their, in their family's recent memory, this great uprising. Judas Maccabeus, his people, they become the Hasmonean dynasty. They, they, they rule themselves for a while again until they start infighting and start sleeping around. <laughs> I'm not going put to put it bluntly. And until there, a civil war arises within the Hasmonean dynasty itself, and which opens the way for Rome to come in and actually rule them again and to take over. And more idols come on their way to, to Jerusalem. And out of that line, out of Judas Maccabees, there's one princess left. Her name's Mary Omni, right? Okay, so you're seeing how this all fits together. The Jewish people were hoping and waiting for a king who would come and rule in righteousness and goodness and instill peace among them. And none, none of this drama, none of this, uh, this, this unrighteousness. And it moves backwards to, to Nehemiah, and his people rebuilding the, the city off after. That would be like in the 1700s. Think of uh, the, the, the colonization of North America. And if you move back even further, another 100 years into the 1600s, in our, from, from our standpoint of view, you have Daniel, who is in exile, and the, the three Hebrew children who were uh, tossed in the fiery furnace because they wanted to pray um, to, to their God, but the, the Babylonians wouldn't let them, or the, the Babylonians wouldn't let them pray to their own God, and they did so anyway, and they were cast into the fire. And before that, moving back another hundred years, you have um, the, the memory of, of King Nebuchadnezzar coming in and destroying Jerusalem and, and pillaging. And in the Jewish memory, they're waiting for for a king finally to give them peace from all of this chaos and hurt. And we see here that Christmas, therefore, and the Jewish people's story is not the story of the, um, of the um, imperial colonizers. Christmas isn't a, the story of the colonizers. Christmas is the story of the colonized, the people who were to lost their homeland, who were oppressed and killed, and had no chance to, to gain their own independence. If we have ears to hear, Christmas is just... And if we are in the position of a, of, of a colonizing group of people, we have to, to, to use our deepest imaginations 
to understand what it's like to be a colonized, oppressed, ruthlessly brutalized people. And when we do, when we can get our minds around that, that we have brothers and sisters in this, in this region who can teach us what that feels like because they're living it today. Um, we get a sense of just the hope that gets born when Jesus is born. He's born out of an oppressed, colonized people. Remember this slide from last week. Solomon had prayed that when the king would come, the real king of the world, the king of the Jews, that righteousness may flourish and peace abound. And Simeon sitting in the temple day after day waiting and watching just the wreckage of human kings uh, and, their un- the, and their unrighteousness flourish. And Zechariah's praying. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, May we be rescued to serve him without fear and righteousness and holiness. Guide our feet into the way of peace. And that's, if I can just stress what kind of hope they're waiting for. And so Simeon, he's there upset with Herod. He's upset with themselves as a Jewish people for, for the storyline and how their kings had, um, had unfolded. And, the, and um, way back when Nebuchadnezzar took the throne, Jeremiah prophesied, you're going to have 70 years because of your sin, 70 years of exile. And Daniel comes along and says, actually, that's more like 490. It's seven seventies. And so they're waiting. The Jewish people are waiting. And they're not just waiting because they hear God in the stillness of their heart because of Daniel's prophecy. He's saying 490 years later, after a certain number of rulers arise, there's going to be a, a, a king who's going to establish righteousness. And guess what? When Jesus was born, it's reaching 490. They, they were even, they were, because of the prophecies, because of the scriptures, they were thinking it's going to happen anytime. Someone's going to come along. And, and actually the, the historian Josephus, who tells us all the stories of all these, this drama, actually says, you know, I, actually, I, I believe that the, the king of righteousness is actually Caesar. Because Caesar was coming in at that time. I believe that's God's fulfillment. He was putting all his hopes in the Roman Empire. But the Jewish... Christians who are part of Jesus' following said otherwise. This baby is the hope of the world. And that's what we're celebrating. So Simeon goes on to prophesy. He says, let's go back to remember. All the way back, sorry. Sir, sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Think of all that history. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. This is the true king of the world, not Caesar, not Antiochus, Epiphanes IV, um, certainly not Herod. A light for the revelation to the Gentiles. And goodness, from Simeon's perspective, do these Gentiles need help? It's just a a brutal mass of, of, of injustice throughout the Gentile world. And the glory of your people, Israel, Your people Israel who will understand righteousness and understand goodness will come and be a people who show the world what it is to live in peace. That's Simeon's hope and prayer all the way through all this history. But Simeon prophesies that it's not just going to happen easily because there's so many kings in the world. There's so many rulers and powers. It's not just, they're not just going to stand down. And so Simeon goes on. This child, he sees, is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Not everyone in Israel is going to follow him, even though he's the true prince. And to be a sign that will be spoken against, people will speak against him. 
so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Jesus isn't coming just to take over the kingship of, of, of Israel. He's coming to look into the hearts of every human person and to call them to allegiance to him. And the secret thoughts of our hearts, everything which we harbor as secret will be revealed. And what, how, the, how that will be revealed? And this is to Mary. A sword will pierce your own heart too, Mary. You will have a choice too. Will you bow to the king of the world? Or will you rise up against him? This is the Christmas story. This is what we're remembering. And so at Christmas time, more than anything, it's a call and a renewal to our allegiance to the king. And on Christmas Day, when it all comes, and we sing the songs and we light the candles, don't forget we're doing it to remind ourselves once again that he's our king. And that we are bowing our knee to this little baby. Many of you have done it. I've done it. As nonsensical as it seems to the world, this king, this child who grew up and taught what it looks like to live as a people full of righteousness, this child who, who shows us just the extent that he's willing to go to um, rescue the world and redeem it and renew it. I've taken that step many, many, many years ago to say that makes the most sense and Jesus' teachings make the most sense out of anything that I've ever come across. And I've committed my life and allegiance to King Jesus. And there's lots of sorrow there. But at the seat of that sorrow is also a profound joy. Because I recognize that in his resurrection, in his kingship, everything about me that's broken will be put together with gold. Everything that's broken about the world will be put together with gold. Anything that's ever been lost and broken and anyone who's ever gone before us who's died, maybe put together in allegiance to Jesus with gold. That is the promise and the joy of Christmas. And so truly we are asking ourselves when, when so many things rush into our lives, wanting our hope, wanting our attention, wanting our allegiance, wanting our time, wanting our faith, Christmas really is a chance once again, as the Christmas carol says, to prepare him room we make room for him as our Lord. And Simeon, that was his thing too. Like I'm, Simeon had spent his whole life preparing. He's made room and in comes Jesus and he's able to receive him and show his allegiance. This, is, this was Simeon's moment. I could die a happy man because I've seen his faith. So friends, I'm going to finish off here today with just, just some real practical stuff. The question is, is what does it look like? What will it look like for you to renew your allegiance to, to Jesus at Christmas time? Some real practical stuff here I want to dive into. Um, he's our king, he's our priest, and he's our savior. If you're going to make room for this kind of thing, which is, if we've missed this, we've missed Christmas. Some, some person said, uh, I was reading, they said, how many people have ever gone through Christmas and never have unwrapped the most expensive, profound gift on Christmas Day, which is, is our Lord. He's the greatest gift. That's the point of the, the Christmas Magi story. How many people have gone on that day and never opened the greatest gift and just rushed past? If we're going to make room to experience something like this, we're going to have to write out a schedule. It's not just going to happen. 
Not going to happen out of, out of thin air because we have so many responsibilities, so many other things which want us. Write out a schedule for Christmas. Plan some, a chunk of time for your family or yourself to express your devotion to, to Jesus. Um, this could look like sharing Thanksgiving. That sharing something that you're thankful for is a great way to show allegiance. You know, and it's hard because we sit around in people who we barely know anymore in our extended family gatherings, and we're supposed to share the deepest things of our heart. Here's what I'm thankful for. Like, and if I were to share my most profound, intimate, vulnerable thing, <laughs> that'd be hard. But can you do that? Can you find some courage to be a little bit open? You know, maybe not the deep, dark thing, but, um, but can you share something that's just a little bit outside of your comfort zone that you're thankful for, for from Jesus, that Jesus has done or that's happened in your life? And that's going to take some preparation. It's not just going to happen out of the, you know, between now and next Wednesday. Take some time to think about it. What could I share that I'm thankful for with my family that's just a little bit, a little bit outside of my comfort zone? Or have a midnight service or an evening service. My family, for the last couple of years, we've sang songs. We've, it's, it's, it's the evening. The kids are in their pajamas. They're about ready to go to bed. We sing some songs. We, tell, we read this story, and we share some things of Thanksgiving with each other. How, plan a service. Just carve out some time to do that. Or um, take on a servant heart. There's no better way to express devotion to Jesus than to become a servant. I think this is, I tell this, it's funny, but it's real. Like, two, I was it three years ago, I decided that instead of after the big meal at my family, I, rather than going and sitting on the couch and getting in a comatose while my mom and my sister cleaned the kitchen, I decided that I, instead of that, I would push off on all of my technology and I would go and cl- help clean the kitchen until it was all done. All the dishes were cleaned and dried. And I wasn't doing that because I was a good person. I was showing my devotion to God. Be a servant. Find the lowest place to serve. Find the hardest thing to do, the thing that no one else wants to do, and do it. And that's an expression of devotion. Or go for a graveyard walk or watch home movies. Take, I'm, we're gonna, this year we're going to take out some home movies of my grandma Rosemary at Christmas time, and we're going to watch them. Because, not just because I miss her, I do, but also because I, I, I believe that Jesus will resurrect her someday. And as a reminder that she will be resurrected and alive again, um, we're going to watch a whole movie of her in, in this life. Or take a graveyard walk. We've done this with the girls for the past many years. It's kind of morbid. It's Christmas Day. Why are you walking in a graveyard? <laughs> because we're reminded that these people are, aren't going to be dead forever. We're reminding ourselves and showing our faith that God will do something beautiful and great in the future. Or how about this? The greatest gift. <laughs> uh, Christmas presents are meant to symbolize grace. The grace that we've received from God in the form of Jesus. That's what Christmas presents are about. We give them to one another because we want to express that. And of course we buy things for each other and we try to do our best. But grace... If you really want to symbolize grace, grace is that which feels like a great lifting of a burden. Like, what's the heaviest thing that your friend or family member carries in their life? What's the heaviest thing that they can't quite bear alone? Could you give a gift to them which lifts that burden just a little bit? This takes some preparation. You have to know your family and friends. 
What, but could you, could you give a gift which profoundly symbolizes that they don't have to go it alone and remind them of grace? Release the pressures. I don't remember what that meant. I'm being honest. <laughs> uh, and finally, reconcile. Now, I'm going to walk lightly on this, but speak truthfully. Um, Christmas may be a time to reconcile with people who uh, your relationship is broken with. I'm, I'm not talking about trust. I'm not talking about reestablishing uh, trust in broken relationships. I'm just talking about real acts of extension of love with people who um, have done you wrong. Uh, it, it could be one of the most profound times for that. and I'm not sure what that looks like to you, but I don't know if you've ever, um, ever walked through a, a real bro- breaking of a relationship. Um, but somewhere between fatalism, like this is never going to change, and aggressively trying to just make it right, Somewhere between those two extremes is a loving response, which was filled with grace and hope. Um, and I would invite you, if, if, if you are at all stirred by, by me talking about this, and if you can think of the person just with seething anger in your mind, could you find just one, one little thing this Christmas to do to reconcile with them? And I love this this serenity prayer. I'm talking about prayer here at Grassroots for a while. I'm going to finish off with the serenity prayer. Some of you may have read this before. It's actually longer than it gets credit for, so I'm going to read the whole thing here. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can. And wisdom to know the difference. Living one day at a time. Enjoying one moment at a time. Accepting hardships as the pathway to peace. As he did this sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting that he will make all things right if I surrender to his will, that I may be reasonably joyful in this life and supremely joyful with him forever in the next. Might be just, that might be the start of reconciliation for you. It's to just, maybe not even making a movement towards a person, but praying that prayer with them in mind and seeing what God does. So friends, my invitation, prepare him room on the 24th and 25th. That's what this holiday is meant to do if we remember the deepest levels of its message for us. Um, And as you uh, finish off the service today with a couple songs that we have left, whatever God has spoken to you or whatever nudges you have in your heart, I invite you now to respond by coming and taking a piece of bread symbolizing his body, dipping it in the juice symbolizing the blood that he shed for us. And remember, maybe for the first time or, or another time again, receive him as the greatest gift and prepare your hearts to, to do so on Christmas. So friends, however you're so inspired, I invite you forward. The table is set and everyone here is welcome.